Thank you for tuning in to Kineticast. I'm your host, Bo Sauls. Today, we have Dr. Aaron Horshig from Squat University joining us to break down the overhead squat. The overhead squat is one of the main moves in our functional movement assessment and CAMS, so I wanted to bring on an expert like Dr. Aaron to come on and break down the different things that we look at with the system. We talk about different regions of the body during the overhead squat, the importance of test and retesting, mobility options for the ankles and thoracic spine, and how we should be holding stability exercises to build more stability for rehab. We already have the FPM tool on CAMS to give us the top six joint dysfunctions. This episode was mainly for people that are looking more into the data of the different functional movements in CAMS. So when you go through CAMS, you can actually pull all the data from each movement out and look at them individually. For more information, go to www.kineticense.com where you can book your free online demo and have a Kineticense expert go onto your computer and walk you through the system. Let's start episode 21, Breaking Down the Overhead Squat, with Dr. Aaron Horshig from Squat University. Today we have Dr. Aaron Horshig. Dr. Aaron wrote the Squat Bible. He's got a great podcast, and he's got a plethora of information on the internet. Dr. Aaron, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. It's an honor. Yeah, no problem. So um, I wanted to have you on to talk about the overhead squat. This is a very complex movement. It's used in many functional movement screens. We use it in ours and CAMs. And with your expertise, I do feel that you can provide some more information and just the look different ways at it because I think some people get stuck in their own ways to look at an overhead squat. So I think you can really help out with that. But before we get to that, uh, can you go ahead and tell us how you got to become a PT and how you got to start Squat University? For sure, yeah. So I have a very, very deep background in the sport of Olympic weightlifting. I started competing back in 2005 when I was finished with the traditional field sports, football, baseball, and basketball. I made my way to Truman State University, which is a small D2 school up in northeastern Missouri, and found the uh, Iron Dog Olympic weightlifting team. This is back in 2005, and just instantly fell in love with the sport. I had always been someone that spent way too much time in the weight room and even though I was an average athlete in other sports like the weight room was my safe haven so when I found a sport where you competed in the way that you trained I just loved it I enjoyed everything about it I instantly immersed myself in all things weightlifting and strength and conditioning I'd be the kid in the back of the classroom not really paying attention to the biology professor but reading through journal of strength and conditioning research kind of thing cool so that's really where I I really wanted to push my my education and my path and what I found is in every single strength sport weightlifting powerlifting now CrossFit strongman there's not a single person that goes through their sport that doesn't develop an injury at some point it's always something new you know someone's always having you know an elbow issue a knee issue a back issue you're rarely gonna find a seasoned athlete who doesn't have some ache and pain throughout their body and I was you know just the same I had never gone through an entire year of training where something wasn't hurting. And sort of that led me down my own path of experiencing physical therapy and the benefits of what a good physical therapist can bring to someone in allowing them to uncover their weak links, help them solidify issues that they have in movement, decrease their pain and get back to performing, which is the end goal of every single athlete. So I ended up getting my degree in exercise science and then going to the University of Missouri to get my doctorate in physical therapy. 
and I have since been out in Kansas City working at a place called Boost Physical Therapy and Sports Performance, which was last year acquired by a much larger uh, performance company called Exo. So a lot of people are familiar yeah. with them. And um, yeah, I've just been working with athletes ever since. And in 2015, so four years ago, started Squat University, which is basically my outlet to the world of helping. <laughs> really empower the athlete, sort of in a way in which I had been helped in the past from, you know, other mentors of mine like Kelly Starrett, you know, he was putting out all of his stuff for free on YouTube back in the day, you know, this is sort of my outlet, my way of talking to the world and, and helping others uh, that don't necessarily have the ability to always have a PT on hand or a, a doctor on hand to help them through things, you know, I want to be able to help the world in that way, so that was Squat University for me, and as ever since, uh, a huge passion. So I guess I technically work two jobs during the week, and <laughs> just try to do as much as I can to help the world. Yeah, man, that's awesome. And I will say, like Squat University, not just for people that uh, need a PT lab, but I mean, there's docs all over that that use Squat University as reference and different rehabs to do with different patients. So I mean, just a great amount of. I mean, you can go through anything. I, I mean, I, I like to scroll through the the website all the time, and I will pick something just just to review and just to study. You know what I mean? It's just it's just nice to go back through stuff sometimes, and maybe stuff that you've seen. But man, you a lot of times you'll break things down in a different way that not everybody has broken it down. So it's really cool to see how you'll look for different corrective strategies or look for different like compensation patterns, which I, I always look for too. So let's go ahead and let's talk about. Uh, overhead squat. Let's start from the ground up. Let's start with like ankle, ankle dorsiflexion. What are some indicators for you to assess ankle dors dorsiflexion? Yeah, so for sure the ankle is one of the most limited joints as far as mobility in the entire body that often goes unnoticed. I think a lot of times people, especially in the overhead squat, because our focus is so heavily on our arms going over our head, we're so focused on that aspect of the squat that we forget that the ankles are the most important part of it all. You know, whenever you see a problematic squat and the chest is driving forward, or especially in an overhead squat where the arms are falling forward and they can't keep the PVC pipe or the barbell if they're doing a barbell squat over their head, the first thing you should look at is the ankles. Because what happens is that in order to squat deep, in order to keep your chest upright in that deep squat, you have to have great ankle mobility. The tibia needs to translate forward over the stable foot complex, and if you don't have that ability, something else up the chain is going to break down. You're not movement compensations all the way up the rest of the chain. So when we look at the ankle, if you want to get technical with it, most people in closed chain dorsiflexion should have around 30 to 35 degrees of ankle dorsiflexion. Now, for people that don't have a goniometer on hand, basically I like to use just a simple wall test. So you put your foot about five inches from the wall, you kneel down next to it, you drive your knee towards the wall without your foot popping off the, the ground, and you see, can you touch your knee to the wall? For most people, that five inches from the wall is roughly that 30 to 35 degrees of closed chain dorsiflexion. And it's funny because a lot of times when we're going through school, you know, med school, PT school, chiropractic school, you're, you're taught when you look at the ankle, you measure it in the open chain. So you have someone sitting over the edge of right. the bed and you measure their ankle range of motion that way. Well, unless you're a swimmer, literally no one is ever <laughs> going to be limited that, you know, that dreadfully in ankle mobility. I mean, unless you literally have, you know, a post-op ankle or someone that had a horrible sprain in their ankle, I don't care how much open chain dorsiflexion they have because it doesn't affect them whenever they're moving. Right. However, the closed chain dorsiflexion, your foot in contact with the ground, that's what I want to see. 
And a lot of times people have those restrictions and they won't even know about it. Now, as a side note to that, some people will say, well, don't wear weightlifting shoes with a raised heel because it will limit your ankle mobility. Well, that's completely false. A weightlifting shoe with a raised heel does help you if you have limited ankle mobility, but it's not going to limit your ankle mobility or create a stiffness. There's a reason why the best weightlifters in the world wear a weightlifting shoe yep. with a raised heel. It's not because they have stiff ankles. It's because it helps them get into even better positions. So that's one thing I think people have a misconception at when it comes to the ankle and the shoes that we wear. So when we're looking at ankle mobility, if we find that we have a limitation in that dorsiflexion, there's usually one of two causes. You're having either a blocked sensation in the front side of the ankle or a pin sensation, which is significant of a joint restriction. Basically, the tibia is not, not gliding correctly on the talus bone, or you have stiffness in the back side of the calf, which is going to be soft tissue restriction. It's going to be either some mobility uh, of the tissues of the fascial planes back there or just some stiffness in the particularly the soleus muscle. Uh, the gastroc muscle, because it's a two-joint muscle and it connects not only at the ankle but also behind the knee, in a deep squat, the soleus or the, uh, the gastroc is going to be shortening and lengthening at one side versus the other, so you're not going to get a huge change in length. So if you have a restriction in ankle mobility and it feels really stiff in the back of the calf, it's likely more your soleus muscles is going to be excessively than your gastroc. So that's going to change what specific interventions you're going to give that person to try to improve that mobility. Now, a great analogy I once heard, and this is in, I, I want to say it's Jay Dykery. I'm not sure how to say his last name. He wrote a book called Anatomy for Runners. And in the book, he gave an analogy, which I really enjoyed and sort of took and, and made my own as well in, in my book, The Squat Bible. And basically, if you think about uh, driving through an intersection, well, if you go through a classic European-style roundabout, you can't just drive straight through the intersection. You would just ruin your car. It would bottom out. Right. You have to get the intersection. Well, if you have a restriction in ankle mobility, it is if you had basically put a European-style roundabout in your joint. So as you squat down, your tibia translates forward. Your knee goes forward over your toes. And they have to go forward over your toes and allow your hips to descend to the greatest depth possible. Well, if you have a restriction in ankle mobility, it's like your knees starting to go forward through that intersection, it hits that roundabout and it has to go around. Often that's what leads to knee cave. So a knee caving in or the opposite going out, which we call the varus fault, is often significant of a problem of ankle mobility and basically your tibia's inability to move forward as it should. So it hits that roundabout, there's compensation, and then the knee's gonna track off axis in, uh, as a problem due to it. So allowing yourself more ankle mobility clears up issues at the knee and elsewhere up the body. So the ankle is often one of the most important factors that a lot of people don't realize because they're so heavily looking at the rest of the body, the hips, the knees, right. where the PVC pipe or bars above their head if they're doing over a squat, they don't look ankles first. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's like, for me, I always talk about this too. Um, I was an ex-basketball player, so broken ankles a bunch. Like As soon as I started doing CrossFit, uh, when I went overhead, that was my issue. It was always ankle mobility. And you heard all the different theories about weightlifting shoes, 
uh, whether you should wear them versus not wear them, well, when you have degeneration in your ankles, sometimes that's just a, good, a better option for you. And uh, that, it's always oh, cool, sure. to, cool to hear uh, how you talk about that the weightlifting shoe is not necessarily something that's going to hinder your performance or cause a, another compensation pattern or anything. It's just something to help assist and get into a better position. I really like how you mentioned that these pro Olympic lifters are using these uh, Ollie shoes and they're using them for a reason. It's not that they wouldn't use them if it was going to cause something in their pattern or cause them to get hurt. They would never do that. So that's a really good way to kind of point that out too. Now, um, you kind of went through basically what I wanted to kind of hit on ankle dorsiflexion, so nailed it, and then moved into knees over toes. So you mentioned knees traveling over toes as you descend or into the bottom of the squat. So how, how far do knees go over toes? Where are we looking for knees to pass? What, what kind of patterning do you see there? My biggest thing when I talk about knees over toes is I want to take almost the focus off the knees. I really think when you're looking at a bottom of a squat, what I'm looking for is that your feet should be stable, your body should be balanced. So you should have your center of gravity over the middle of your foot so you shouldn't be excessively leaning onto your toes, too far back on your heels, but you should be balanced. If you start your squat correctly with a good hip hinge and you stay balanced, the knees will go where they should. And depending on someone's level of ankle mobility or level uh, of, uh, I guess you would say, just change in anatomy, the knees will go maybe a little bit far past them. They may not go much past them. And then you'll see some people where their knees are really far past them. But it does not matter how far the knees go past the toes as long as the athlete stays balanced. Their foot should stay directly uh, balanced with the ground, grabbing the ground the entire time, their body weight remaining over the middle of their foot. But I do not care how far an athlete's knees go past the toes as long as they meet those prerequisites. Yeah, cool. Now, and um, you also then spoke about the knee varus valgus. And uh, I noticed that a lot, most people speak about knee valgus, but not many people talk about the varus uh, aspect where they push too far out. Yeah, I mean, I obviously the knee valgus, like the knee collapse is going to be sort of that huge red flag that makes people's minds blow up when they see it on the <laughs> right. internet. Um, just because obviously it's so heavily connected with, you know, a torn ACL, you know, when the knees collapse in, that is a clear indication of maltracking in the knee joint. Obviously with a squat, you're going to be seeing more issues and patellofemoral pain rather than like a torn ACL just because it's a much slower, heavily compressed movement. So you're not necessarily going to have those ligaments at risk. However, what do most coaches do? Knees, I drive the knees wide. Well, if you take most athletes that are very highly competitive, when they hear a cue, they overdo that cue like yep. crazy. So they will drive their knees as far wide as they can. Well, what happens to the foot? The foot rolls on its side. We just created an instability problem just in the opposite direction. Now, often a knee varus issue, I will say if you had sort of a which is worse kind of thing, I think a knee valgus is going to be a little bit worse. You have a lot more stability on the side of your knee as far right. as with your IT band creating stability and its connections, you know, the way in which the body connects on at, at the knee joint. But again, I think anytime the knee is off uh, its optimal alignment in tracking, you're going to run into issues. So yes, uh, driving the knee too far wide in that varus fault is just as bad as a valgus fault. It's your body is moving off balance. You're not working in an optimal manner 
manner and when you're not working in an optimal manner, you're not only going to have those accumulation of micro trauma forces that could create pain, but you're not going to be performing as well, which and the end is basically that the goal of the athlete is we want to be able to perform to our optimal abilities. So when we're having those knees not track well with our toes, we can run into problems eventually. Yeah, definitely. We're talking about uh, performance and athletes and everything. And I mean, this is completely applicable just to everyone, everyone that you take through a functional screen, like this is just making them move more efficiently, decreasing compensation patterns. And it's cool that you like, like I said, the, the varus aspect, because that is going to create another compensation pattern. And I think it is missed by a lot of people and they focus too much on valgus only. And if they don't have a valgus, well, then they're good. But the varus is a, something that needs to be looked at too. So now um, let's keep moving up the chain a little bit. Obviously, we're going to hips next. So um, let's talk about hips breaking 90. Um, this can be an issue for a lot of different people, especially when they lift their hands overhead. Um, trunk ends up flexing a lot. But let's go through, like, what do you assess after you find, okay, where first place you go if someone is uh, stopping shy of 90? Yeah, I would say if someone stops shy of 90, I'm probably going to look straight to their ankle. Yeah, I really find that most people um, have an issue getting good depth on their squat, not because of hip mobility, but because of something else. They're probably having an issue at their ankle joint or with an overhead squat. They just may, may be pushing so heavily into a restriction of upper body that they're going to fall forward so they just stop themselves shy. If you were to take someone that stops themselves shy of 90 degrees in a squat and you were to lay them on their back, I'm sure most people, healthy athletes-wise, would be able to take their knee and pull it most of the way to their chest. Now, right. we're talking about like a big 350-pound lineman in the <laughs> NFL. You know, there may be a good amount of soft restriction that doesn't allow them to get real far past that. So I think everyone, you know, you have to obviously take an individual case-by-case -case manner. And some really, um, you know, athletes may just not have the ability to because they've got just a lot of excessive uh, soft tissue that's not allowing their knees to really pull that height. So in that case, sure, there may be those cases. You also may have an issue where, depending on their setup, they're limiting themselves and closing off their hip joint sooner. So if you have an athlete who's extremely retroverted at the hip joint, and you're like, all right, stand with your toes perfectly straightforward. Well, they're obviously going to close off their hip joint much sooner during nope. the defender squat, and they're going to run out of available hip motion, and then they're going to impinge on themselves. So they're not going to be able to squat down as deep because of the, just the way in which their anatomy articulates at the joint. So for that person that's very retroverted, obviously there's a number of screens you can do, like Craig's test, maybe to get a better understanding of what's going on at the hip joint. But having that person maybe squat their toes a little bit more and just rechecking, all right, what happens? Did you squat a little bit deeper because we just changed your stance up a little bit? Now, I'll say most people don't have crazy amounts of hip retroversion. You know, I, right. I think sometimes we overblow the amount of uh, suspected hip anatomy changes right. and pass it off as, hey, this is just anatomy when really the person is lacking mobility, uh, soft tissue-wise, that can be cleared up. So, uh, but, that, you know, it's something to think about. But again, I, I really think if, you're, if we're just talking about straight 90, not being able to hit 90, and you're looking at the hip joint, I'm probably going to do a breakout in ankles because I find that most of the time, if we actually were to lay that person on their back, go passive, I guess we would say, or non-weight bearing, then they do have the ability to bring that hip joint past 90. So it's just when they're weight bearing, if that's the issue, it's probably not 
problem at the hip joint. It's probably something somewhere else in the body like the ankles. I mean, you're pretty much describing me as trying to become a better crossfitter for the past 10 years, man. Like after <laughs> getting hurt so much through basketball, like with ankles, it's just been, hey man, look at your ankles, look at your ankles. And I'm like, yep, I, I get it. That's that's where I am consistently rolling out and flossing soleus and trying to get, just trying to get depth. But no, that's, and that's why I wanted to start there too. I wanted to start at ankles because I do feel that is a, a heavy portion. I like that you keep, mm-hmm. uh, you say like, that's, we're going to go to ankles if you're not breaking 90 because right, how are you going to get into that position that the tibia can't get into the spot? So, um, let's keep moving up. So what about like, uh, lack of core stability? Uh, what do you, what do you find whenever someone has a lack of core stability as they're going into an overhead squat? What are some compensation patterns that arise? Yeah, so again, what you'll see during an overhead squat is as the person squats down, that back is often going to round. So they will flex as they continue to descend into the squat. Um, Sometimes you'll see the opposite where you'll see someone that's got really good overhead mobility and they'll just like overarch their back like Mm -hmm. crazy on the way down. So they'll go into an anterior pelvic tilt or overarch their low back. But most of the time, they're probably going the opposite where they're rounding their back a little bit. But again, anytime that you're leaving that neutral spine, uh, optimal uh, align or uh, alignment. That's you know that's not going to be as optimal for the movement pattern as a whole because when you load an overhead squat or any squat in general, the the more uh, we can maintain that neutral spine, just the more resilient you're going to be to injury and the more uh, powerful you're going to be, especially when we're talking about a heavy barbell squat. Um, again, whenever we're talking about core stability or just stability of any joint. It always comes with the premise that a stable platform will break down in presence of immobility or stiffness at the neighboring joint. So if you have a problem in core stability, maintaining alignment of that of that spine, the first thing I'm looking for is hip mobility or thoracic spine mobility because a problem in maintaining that core uh, and the ability to maintain that spine in neutral it's probably not coming from a lack of core stability by itself. It's right. probably because your body has run into stiffness somewhere else at a neighboring joint, and then instantaneously that core is are going to break down, that spine is not going to be able to be held in a neutral position. And a lot of times people will see this, and this is, I mean, this is basic joint-by-joint approach, going back to Greg <laughs> Cook and Mike Boy yep. on their way of understanding the body. And we have to understand that if you see a problem in core stability, and you see someone whose spine breaks down and leaves that neutral position, it is not only about doing core stability exercises. You must you must screen the neighboring joints, and even neighboring joints all the way below. Again, ankle mobility, coming back to that, because if you only do core stability and you take that focused microscopic approach at the problem area, you will miss the big picture, and you will never make significant changes that are going to be lasting in the body. That's awesome, man. And I love what you said. Uh, you're taking that microscopic approach. We have to look at everything as a functioning unit. And that's that's what you keep saying. It's like, that's why we're going back to the ankles. That's why we're not just looking at the core. You got to look at glute stability. You got to look at mobility. You got to look at thoracic mobility. I mean, and then uh, mentioning joint by joint. Yes, of course. I mean, uh, joints that are lacking mobility usually have a joint above it that's hypermobile. So we need to start to look for different stability patterns. So yeah, man, I mean, that, that's great. And and you, when you start to see these, I think what happens is you get the different coaches that are in the gym for so long and they just start to get their patterns with certain people and then they want to have different patterns. Like they say, this is this is what it is with most of the lifters that we have in here. But I mean, people's people are so different with what they've had happen to them and different things. It's really nice to be, have, get a thorough breakdown of this overhead squat. 
So let's go with wrist staying in line with the shoulders. So um, as you're descending down into the squat, uh, start to get some more flexion. Uh, what would you say? Uh, what, are, what are we seeing there? Um, is it going to be mostly like scapular stability? Are we looking at thoracic mobility again? Are we getting into like anything cervical? What, what would you say? Yeah, so again, we would have to take our view up a little bit higher from that lumbar spine and go directly to sort of that mid-back shoulder complex region. There's a, a couple different factors that have great interplay that we have to understand every single part of it. You have the thoracic spine, which inherently is extremely stable, and it has to be because the thoracic spine connects to all of our ribs, which then protect our vital organs, so it can't be extremely mobile. Right. <laughs> so our thoracic spine, it, I think, is, is prone to a good amount of stiffness. But when we're moving, especially when overhead, it has to have a good amount of mobility in order to allow the next thing, which is your uh, shoulder blade, your scapula, to be able to move to its correct position. Now, once in the correct position, the shoulder blade must remain stable. It's almost like um, if you would imagine the analogy of a boy helping a father set up a ladder against the side of the house. Now, the boy is synonymous with the scapula. It has to take the ladder and stack it right into place and has to hold it on the ground. And then the father is going to be more so like the arm sort of moving that joint all the way up, putting the ladder against the house. Well, if that boy is not doing its job and the shoulder blade is just moving all around like crazy, that dad's going to have a hard time setting the ladder in a good position to place the, the ladder against the house. So right. sort of everything has to work correctly. You have to have enough thoracic spine mobility. You have to have enough uh, shoulder blade movement, uh, but then also stability at the same time. And then you have to have a lot of shoulder joint mobility. And if you have a breakdown in one of those, so for example, we often see athletes uh, who are very mobile in their shoulder joint, but are lacking shoulder blade or all the muscles that connect to the shoulder blade, stability. Right. These are your athletes that are very hypermobile that just develop sort of, uh, I guess you'd say hypermobile related injuries, labrum tears, things like that. Um, so you understand every single one of those parts. There's a number of different screens that you can do for the thoracic spine to see how much mobility you have in that. Um, and then also when we're testing shoulder blade stability, usually we're doing things like a, a mid-trap or a low-trap manual muscle test. Just understand, are the muscles on the back side of the body that connect to the shoulder blade? Are they providing sufficient activation and stability? And then also understanding shoulder joint uh, mobility. I think when we're talking about most of our young athletes, uh, you're not going to have a lot of shoulder joint restrictions. I think right. time joint restrictions are going to develop later in life. Um, you know, if I'm dealing with a 50-year-old athlete, sure, I right. may be dealing with a little bit more capsular and some, some issues at the joint. Or if I'm dealing with an athlete that maybe had like a, a prior shoulder surgery, you know, do we have an athlete who had, you know, played baseball towards labrum, then had a labrum repair, and now they're doing CrossFit, you know, like yep. we have to take that into consideration and understanding, you know, maybe there is some some joint mobility restrictions. Um, but again, if you're looking at the wrist and you're seeing that the wrist is falling forward or they're having an issue in the alignment, stuff, I'm taking my, my focus and I'm coming more down towards the shoulder complex. Um, I would say the more common restrictions that I find when we're talking about shoulder uh, alignment and wrist alignment is I see a lot of lat flexibility problems and pec flexibility problems, yep. and especially the lats. Yep. And the reason I think the lats are so heavily restricted often is because of the way in which we sort of structure a lot of our workouts or just our history. The lats are very strong internal rotators 
and extensors of the shoulder joint. So if you think about anything that requires a lot of interrotation and extension, so basically anytime you're pulling the bar from the ground, right. so a deadlift, a clean, a snatch, anytime you're pulling the bar from the ground, you're pulling that bar close to your body, you're internally rotating your shoulders, you're going to develop a lot of uh, stiffness in that joint compared to rotation and flexion, which is that position of being overhead. So I think the lats can just become prone to stiffness. And when that happens, is in that overhead position, your body's going to pull out of that flexion and extension or flexion and external rotation position needed to get into an optimal alignment overhead. So that's usually the things that I find as far as breaths and there are a number of different ways to test the uh, mobility and flexibility of those areas. But yeah, th those are the areas I think that I would see the most of. A again, it's, it's one of those things. When you're seeing a problem at the wrist, it's probably not a problem at the wrist. wrist correct. That's just where the symptoms of your problem are. Yeah, your, your cause, your why is probably a bigger movement issue elsewhere in the body, probably a little bit more proximal at the uh, at the shoulder complex. And again, it's just sort of reiterating the same point, hammering it over and over again. We can't take that microscopic look at the body. Yep. You know, you have to take a step back and understand the big picture of how everything in the body is connected. And if you don't understand the complexities and how the, all these interactions with mobility and stability come together, you're going to miss big picture problems and uh, have short-term fixes in trying to make changes in your movement problems. Yeah, I mean, I think this is why this is why the functional movement theory and then assessing functional movement and just looking at movement altogether, not not necessarily depending on how you want to go about your theory with it, but uh, just looking at movement altogether is that that's the key. Is like you got to look at different movements, you got to look at different things, you got to you can't look at just one thing. Like you've never had most of my knee injuries or any whenever I treat a knee, it's rare that a lot of times it's directly in the knee unless there's an MOI or something with that. So um, that's kind of uh, that's cool to see too so let's go ahead and get into shoulder axis rotation so if someone's dropping down and you're starting to see a heavy rotation in the bar uh one side coming forward one side coming back whatever whatever you'd see or a dipping hip what would you what are you what are you thinking when you see a heavy rotation in a bar yeah so i think if you're seeing a rotation side to side Again, we're probably going to be looking back at how just whole, that whole shoulder complex is coming into play. We're probably seeing an imbalance in stability, mobility on one side versus the other. That's where those breakout screens always come into play. Often, if you're seeing that one side of the shoulder sort of rotate forward, what are we seeing? Well, you could have possibly lat, uh, a flexibility issue on that one side. It's pulling that shoulder joint forward. Um, you could have a restriction in pec flexibility, particularly yeah. that pec minor is yeah. probably going to be a little bit more at play just because of the angle on which the muscle uh, sort of pulls on the shoulder joint whenever you're overhead. Um, those are probably going to be your, your main limiters in allowing that shoulder joint complex to remain open, allowing that, um, you know, the, the joint to move in, in optimal alignment. I hear a lot of people and they'll say, well, in the overhead position, uh, the Chinese will, will cue internal rotation. And because the Chinese are so great at weightlifting, we should take everything they say as the Bible. And it's, it's so funny because if you actually look at the way in which the humerus moves in flexion or in any type of elevation plane, there's so many biomechanical studies where the, the shoulder joint moves through external rotation. 
the movement of flexion and external rotation are coupled in every single plane of elevation. Flexion, scaption, abduction. It is elevation with external rotation. And that's needed because of the anatomy, the way in which your humerus is actually uh, set up. There's that big old bump right on the end of it. Yeah. And if you don't have enough external rotation, you're going to have parts of the of the joint collide into each other. You know, you need a sufficient amount of external rotation in order to allow clearing of the joint to allow optimal alignment overhead. And then once you're overhead, it's about just maintaining stability. And a lot of people are saying, you know, cue internal rotation. Well, why do I want a cue for internal rotation? Because where's that going to push the bar? Right. It's going to push the bar forward. That's not where I want it. Now, some people, again, just like knees wide, will take external rotation at the top and they'll just like, push their armpits so far forward and try to externally rotate their shoulder joint like crazy. And then we wind up with a funky looking overhead. Right. So again, it's, it's all about maintaining optimal alignment. And yeah. yes, the shoulder joint, when you are in that overhead position is in external rotation. Like there's no denying that if you look at across the board at biomechanical studies, there's no mention whatsoever of flexion, abduction, or even a scapular plane elevation mixed with internal rotation. The shoulder joint moves externally in order yep. to get overhead. Yep. Uh, let's let's go into the uh, how how you're going to mobilize these areas. We talked about mobilizing different areas, so we're jumping back down to the ankles. We're looking at the soleus. Yeah. Um. I are you going to go with uh, Kelly Sturette with like the flossing, foam rolling? Um. How are you uh, releasing that soleus or getting some more mobility in the soleus? Yeah. I mean, it's it's really going to be sort of a combination of what works best with you. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the stuff that Kelly puts out, and I think the big thing that Kelly and I have talked about so many times is that you do not need to be a researcher at an ivory tower university to be your own scientist and perform the scientific method of test and retest. It's yes. so simple. You have a limitation in ankle mobility, test it. I do that. Five inch wall test. That's a very easy way to do it. All right, we found a problem. What do we do? Well, let's try some flossing. You saw it on YouTube. You saw someone do it on Instagram. Is that going to work for you? I don't know. Let's figure it out. You test. You do the flossing routine, you retest directly after. Yep. Did you make significant improvement in your test? If you did, there you go. That's a sign that that mobility exercise is right for your body in allowing you to make significant changes in your restriction. So, I mean, there's so many options. You can floss, you can do foam rolling, you can use a Theragun if you want. Yep. You can use, you know, there's so many soft tissue mobilization tools. You can just do your classic stretches. You know, you can put your foot against the wall and stretch your calf out. There's a number of different methods that you can use that will show significant changes in flexibility, but it's all about what works best for your body. Because a lot of some people, they're like, I foam roll on my ankles every single day. And I'm like, well, does that help? And they're like, I don't know. I'm like, well, <laughs> test. Find out if it does. Because if not, then you're wasting your time. So the, the big thing is if it's a soft tissue issue, we're going to see often very um, good improvement with mobilizations of uh, the soft tissue with foam rolling with some flossing, with some just classic stretching. And then we can also, if we have a joint restriction, we need to do banded joint mobilization. So if you're with a physical therapist, a chiro, or anyone else uh, that understands mobilizations with movement, that's going back to Mulligan and all his work, they can do it on you, or you can just do a very basic joint uh, banded joint mobilization yourself. And that can be very helpful for clearing up those joint restrictions. So if anyone had a prior broken ankle or a prior sprained ankle, a lot of times you'll 
need to do a banded joint mobilization in order to try to clear up uh, mobility because if you have that pinch or block sensation in the front side of the ankle, which is significant of the knee not being able to translate forward over the toe, we have that restriction in the actual uh, joint place so that the, uh, the tibia is not moving well over the talus. And no amount of foam rolling or stretching is going to fix that. You have right. to affect the joint itself. The only way to do this is with a banded joint mobilization. Yeah, and uh, you hit a couple of good points there. The uh, the test retest uh, with with cams kinetosense. I mean, that's what we do. Like we take people through a movement, we score their movement after therapies and rehab. We take them back through and retest, and you got to see the difference, and you have to see the change, and that kind of holds you accountable. Now, the another one that you said yeah. is the. Uh, just stretch your calves. <laughs> like half the time, I hear a CrossFitter is like, "Well, man, I don't have a foam roller or a lacrosse ball, so I can't do anything." I'm like, "No, you can still stretch your calves. <laughs> like, there, you can do what we've done for yeah. years and years and years, man. <laughs> There's still that option. So that's that's a. I think that's yeah, fun. Like stre- stretching, stretching still works. It's yeah, still works, <laughs> still works to make to make to make short term changes in flexibility. It's it's you know, is it going to make long term changes? I don't think we have a ton of great studies on right. that yet. I mean, it's. You're not going to see any, you know, studies of someone that's been stretching, you know, a particular muscle for 10 months. Correct. They just, I mean, the longest studies we have are like 12 weeks. But, I mean, if you can make a short-term change, there you go. That's showing you that what you're doing is effective. <laughs> and then plus, like you, like we're saying, like just stretching, like stretching one muscle, again, that goes to micro versus macro. And if you're stretching one muscle, that's not necessarily going to be the thing that drops you lower into that overhead squat anyway. So... Um, you got to kind of look at mm-hmm. everything throughout the full. So um, we talked about the foam rolling of the soleus. Now let's go into thoracic mobility. Um, what are some good ways mm-hmm. that you increase thoracic mobility? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple different ways that you can do that. Um, I think the classic way for looking at particularly joint play is uh, just the, the peanut mobilization where you have two lacrosse yep. balls taped together and just sort of doing sort of anterior poster gliding one over the other. Um, takes a video sort of to explain that the best way um, but I think a lot of people know what I'm talking about yeah um, that's a great way there's a couple other ways you can go about sort of getting uh, more of an extension based stretch into extension you can use a box with a PVC pipe sort of pushing into extension um, you could just do your classic foam roller prayer stretch which I think is great as well um, and then there's another view sometimes where you're basically seated uh, with a foam roller squeezing between your knees, so you're stabilizing your pelvis a little bit, and you have a PVC pipe on your back, and you're just going to rotate as far as you can, and then once you hit sort of that end wrench, you're going to side bend, and then back up, and then you're going to rotate a little bit farther, and then you're going to side bend and back up. So we're sort of coupling all the motions of the spine, which is rotation and side bend, and that's a big way that I like to screen the thoracic spine actually, because yeah. it's so difficult to weed out thoracic spine extension because there are literally so many different parts of the thoracic spine as far as the amount of joints that we're looking at. Um, Just sort of taking into account how much rotation we have side to side, it's a very easy way to measure how much mobility we have. And the way in which the thoracic spine moves when we're talking about extension, how one joint literally glides over the other, understanding how much mobility we have in rotation can give us a good impression of how well that joint or a series of joints are going to move well in extension. So if we can improve the thoracic spine's ability to rotate and side bend, we can also improve inherently the thoracic spine's ability to extend. So that's a, another good one as well that we can take into account for improving thoracic spine mobility. 
Yeah, that's great. And I think the last one I, we really want to hit on is I'm, I'm trying, obviously, I'm trying to hit some major areas for people that uh, you get questions mm-hmm. that I ask a lot about. So um, the last one, let's look at the scapular stability. So are we hitting, um, I, I have definitely seen multiple times through social media, you do the wall slide with the foam roller um, to kind of work on some stabilization. But what are your favorite uh, scapular stability exercises? Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on what you have that's limiting True. your scapular stability. So you mentioned the wall slide with uh, with like a band around uh, um, around your wrist. I think that's going to be classically a little bit more geared towards uh, an issue in serratus anterior activation. Yeah. Um, I mean, you put the band around your wrist, then you're also going to be bringing into account a little bit more, uh, you know, lateral rotator cuff stability and strength with external rotation. So. Um, I think it really depends. I, you know, I classically a lot of people will do sort of the, the T's and Y's off the bed. Again, those are exercises that can be great, sort of lower level. They can be done really well. They can be done really crappy sometimes. So again, it takes a very good cueing. Yep. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of starting off with just your, your classic, for a lot of people, uh, what we would call prone horizontal abduction. So laying on your stomach off a bench and just raising your arm off to the side like a T and holding that position. Now we have to cue different things when we're when we're starting off. We need to make sure that the motion is really being generated at the shoulder blade. So as your arms hanging long down by your side, in order to bring that arm out to the side like you're making half of the T, you have to start by pulling your shoulder blade in towards your spine. So that movement of retraction, and then as your arm lifts out to the side, it's the shoulder blade that's making most of the movement. Uh, we're not overactivated in the upper traps. We're making sure that we're getting a lot of mid and low trap activation. Um, and just holding out to the side for a couple seconds before coming back down. That's the big thing I think that we, if you are emphasizing stability, your movement, your exercise must have a hold. A lot of times people will say that just because they are doing a movement and maybe even doing it with heavy weight, that they're improving stability. And that's a common fallacy because strength is different than stability. Strength is your ability to produce force. Stability is your ability to limit excessive or unwanted motion. So that has to be carried out in the way in which we perform an exercise. So if we're trying to improve scapular stability, if I'm doing an exercise and I'm just moving through, so let's say I'm doing external rotation with it and I'm doing like a W exercise. So hands by my side, 90 degrees with the elbows, and we're just sort of externally rotating. If I'm just going out and back in, I'm working on the strength, particularly of my rotator cuff muscles on the backside of my body that are producing exercise. But if I then go out and I hold that position for five to 10 seconds, now I'm cueing my body to limit the excessive or unwanted motion of the arms coming back into the body. So I'm limiting and teaching my body how to limit against internal rotation of the shoulder. So I'm proving shoulder stability in that manner. Bring like the classic, uh, T's and Y's off the bed, or I mean, you can do like a standing external rotation press with a band, which is yeah. a great exercise that has a lot of carryover, I think, to overhead lifts. Um, each position needs to have like a five second hold, and when you're doing that, you're going to be priming your body and pain that joint position. You're priming for stability instead of just improving strength, because a lot of times when I'm seeing athletes. Uh, with patterns or with problems that have developed into pain. It's not that they're weak. It's that they have a poor ability to coordinate and stabilize the strength that they do have. Yeah. Wow. 
No, that's great. I'm gonna give you a little plug here, uh, Dr. Aaron. I mean, everyone's gonna be looking at thinking like, man, where am I gonna find these exercises? He's described a lot of things that I wanna try right now. <laughs> yeah. This is when you go to Squat University. You wanna go ahead and plug some of the stuff for it? Yeah, so I mean, all this stuff is for free. I try to give all my best information out for free um, because that's really how you make the biggest change in the world. And what I'm doing is uh, I have a collection of blogs on squatuniversity.com. There's a tab at the top that says blog articles, and you can just scroll down through it. I mean, it starts in, it's grouped sort of mobility, and then there's stability, and then technique, and stuff like that all the way down, and then there's a whole chapter or blog, uh, I guess, category of injury and rehabilitation. So, yeah, underneath those, if you go, I mean, there's a whole blog article on improving thoracic spine mobility, and you can see five or six different exercises, all with some videos or pictures on how to do those. Um, I mean, obviously, that's that's the best way because it's the the best library, I guess, with everything sort of categorized the best way. But I try to do as much as I can on every single social media platform that uh, that is available nowadays. I mean, you nail it too, man. Like you've got absolutely everything on there. And then your podcast is great too. So that's that's another avenue. So Thank people you. that uh, want to find more information, and I like podcasts obviously, just because this is a good way. Whenever you have a commute, man, I mean, you throw it on. This is how you can get some more knowledge, information, think about things a different way. So check out the Squat University podcast hope i don't lose too many listeners to you but man let them go because that's good that's good info for you um but uh dr horsey thank you for joining us today man it was really good to have you on we appreciate your expertise and you taking the time with us you're so welcome I, i'm glad to be on the show and thanks so much for having me thank you for listening to episode 21 with dr aaron horsey from squat university Dr. Aaron gave us a really good idea of where to go with all the data that we're gathering while screening patients and athletes on kinetosense. I believe the test and retest aspect was one of the most important things we talked about. What you do is you baseline your patients and athletes and you see where their movement is now. When you use kinetosense, you're baselining and you're scoring them 0 to 100 throughout the whole body. Now I can actually see what rehab or treatments or therapies, whatever I'm doing, have helped the most to that patient or client. It's also not just about the immediate change. You want to make sure that the change you're making stays in their movement, meaning that I baseline them now and then I do a test retest. And in two weeks, I want to test them again and see that they have the mobility and stability increases that we've been looking for and overall more control and motion. Because we are using kineticence to analyze the overhead squat, it will record the body in 3D during the full descending and ascending motion, so we'll be able to see if the client or athlete is losing balance or control during the overhead squat. The overhead squat module does track if the knees go over the toes or not. It doesn't tell you how far, but it does let you know if the person is getting enough dorsiflexion to where they can actually push their knee over their toe. We are very grateful that Dr. Aaron was able to join us from Squat University to break down the overhead squat, as this is one of our main movements that we measure in CAMS, our functional movement screen. For more information about Kineticense, go to www.kineticense.com, where you can book your free online demo. Again, thank you for listening. This was a really fun episode. I'm your host, Bo Sauls. Let's keep learning about movement, performance, and rehab together. <laughs>